The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. And joining us on the line right now is Kevin Briggs, longtime California Highway Patrol sergeant whose beat centered around the Golden Gate Bridge. He's now retired and the author of a book about his experiences helping people he encountered on the bridge who were contemplating suicide. Over the course of some two decades, he talked with more than 200 people who had come to the Golden Gate Bridge to end their lives. He saved all but two of those people. His book is called Guardian of the Golden Gate, Protecting the Line Between Hope and Despair. Your story is a really fascinating one. Talk to us a little bit about how you ended up being the go-to person so often over the years when it came to responding to suicidal people on the bridge. Sure. Actually, um, I started working on the bridge I way back probably 1994-ish, and I actually just liked the beat. I didn't know that it had so many suicides and suicide attempts on the bridge. So this was very new to me. I had no training in this and it hit me really hard when I had to come up to one of these incidents. So I decided, you know, if I want to work down here, um, I better educate myself. So I started going to the library. We didn't have the computer back then and, and doing a lot of research and finding out how I could become better at talking to folks of, you know, what were they thinking possibly what's going through their head. So, you know, that's kind of how I got started into this. It was all kind of happenstance, I guess. But I knew when I saw someone over that rail that, wow, you know, if it's not me, it's going to be somebody else. But we need people down here who are trained, who want to be in this position and try to help them. So that's what I kind of studied and then made my forte. But is there really much training that can prepare you for being in a situation where someone is contemplating ending their life? I mean, isn't each situation very different or, or were there a lot of similarities? You know, there are some similarities, but each, each one is unique in itself. Like every person is unique. Um, but most of the times, you know, I have found that hopelessness is really big. Um, despair. And most folks don't let they were a burden to their families and they suffered from a mental illness, maybe depression, if it was diagnosed or not. And the other one is that most of the time, 99% of the time, if they were prescribed a medication for a mental illness, they had stopped it a month or so prior. And that's really big when we talk about medications, especially when it comes to this. Wow. Why do people choose the Golden Gate Bridge for suicide? Because it's such a beautiful, beautiful place that is so often photographed and you see it, you know, on, on my friend's social media with people my age, people are always wanting bridge photos. And then you think of how much tragedy it's brought to people's lives. So how is it both extremes? You know, to, to put it um, bluntly, I, I had a gentleman over the rail who was not under the influence of alcohol or drugs or anything. Actually, it was a very, very smart individual who had been suffering from mental illness for quite some time. 
And I asked him, why are you here? He came from New Jersey all the way out to the Golden Gate Bridge. I go, you know, why are you here at, at this bridge? And all he told me was, it'll get the job done. So there's wow. been a lot of, of rumors around that, but that's what he told me. And unfortunately, yes, it did. How many people have jumped to their deaths from the Golden Gate Bridge? In my personal opinion, I would say well over 2,000. And were there any commonalities in terms of their age, sex, race, or socioeconomic status? It runs the gamut, but mainly it's white males. Why is that? You know, I, that's a good question. <laughs> I know there's a lot of stress, but that's, that's everybody. You know, these days, we all have a lot of stress. So it may go back to the, the typical the breadwinner years and years and years and years ago. Um, but these days, we know generally, especially in the Bay Area, it takes two incomes. So a significant other is working also. But I think with with males in particular, that we have a hard time talking about our feelings. To reach out to someone and to really say, you know what, I have some troubles here. And we don't want to acknowledge this so-called weakness, that it's not a weakness. There's, you know, We all have troubling times. So instead of reaching out and go, hey, can I talk to someone? They think they got to hold it all in and they feel like they're the only ones going through this. So it boils up to a point to where they think the only way they can get out of this, whatever it is that that they're into, is by getting off and jumping off of this bridge or some other other recourse. So when you would go up and first um, encounter someone who was about to jump, what would you say to them? How do you approach them? I learned in what I do is if I would do today, if I was working on there, was to walk up and stay a little ways back from them and get their attention, because a lot of times they're looking down at the water. So to get their attention and to show them an open hand and to say, hey, I'm Kevin, or I'm Kevin with the Highway Patrol. Is it okay if I come up and speak with you for a bit? I want to get their permission, so to speak, because so many times these folks have been told what to do, you should have done this and you should have done that. Or why are you here? That to have someone come up and ask their permission for something, I think really sets them in a good mode. And once you've asked their permission, you talk about how listening to them and listening to their story is more important than anything that you could say. Why is that? It really is because I think that these folks, you know, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of courage for one to come up to that bridge and to step over that rail. That takes a lot of courage. These people, for the most part, they want to live. They just can't see the future. You know, they, they're relying on the past. They see what's happened in the past, all these events that have happened to them, but they don't see any hope or purpose in the future. They're trying to so, escape the pain rather rather than wanting exactly. to end their lives. Yes, yes. So they're looking for a reason. So my job is to create some ambivalence, something there, um, to let them know that I, I'm here for you today. And we can get someone there for you tomorrow. You know, we need to get them over this crisis, this crisis state that they're in. And this crisis state may just be a few minutes or several hours, but it took a, it went up to a boiling point and now they're over that rail. You know, I noticed in your book, you, you advise people not to say things like, oh, I know, I know how you feel. It'll be better tomorrow and, and these kinds of things. Correct. Because each of us is different and maybe I've had seven traumatic experiences in my life. Well, maybe that individual over the rail has only had two. 
So for me to come up and go, you know what, look at all these things that have happened to me and make it the Kevin Briggs show is absolutely wrong because it's not about me. And all the things that I have been through, um, I don't discuss with folks who are over the rail because it's not about me. It's about them. And what happens is when they're talking and I'm listening, it gives them a chance to vent. And that really helps. You know, if you're just sitting down with coffee with someone and you're talking about the daily lives or things that are troubling you or just to be there with someone and have them listen, that's huge. That, that really makes them feel good. We're glad you're part of our Nobody Told Me family of listeners, and we're excited to tell you about Lomi, the world's first smart waste appliance. If you've struggled with composting and feel it's too much work or feel bad that you're not doing your part to help the environment, you have to check out Lomi. Lomi is a countertop electric composter, and I love it because I don't have a traditional garbage disposal. With Lomi, I don't need to take a lot of trips to the garbage with food waste. I just turn food scraps into dirt with the push of a button. And in just a minute, we'll tell you about a special offer from Lomi for our Nobody Told Me listeners. I love my Lomi because just about anything I'd put in the kitchen disposer can be put into the Lomi on my countertop and turned into dirt in four hours. There's no smell when it runs and it's really quiet. Since I got my Lomi, I throw out way less garbage. Me too. And you know, I think it's cut down my kitchen garbage by at least a half. That means it's not going to landfills and producing methane. Instead, my Lomi turns my food waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed to my plants. It is so cool to see. I feel great knowing that I'm composting and creating soil instead of garbage. I have a basically limitless supply of dirt now for my garden, and Lomi is so easy to use. While you may want to get a Lomi for yourself, you may also want to get one for someone on your holiday list. This is a great gift that will help someone year-round. If you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash NTM and use the promo code NTM to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash NTM. And again, that's Lomi spelled L-O-M-I. Use promo code NTM at checkout. Food waste is gross. Lomi is your solution. With the holidays just around the corner, Lomi will make the perfect gift for someone on your shopping list. Just head to Lomi.com slash NTM and use the promo code NTM to get $50 off your Lomi. Our show caters to all generations. And, you know, we're a mother-daughter team. um, And I know that both of us have had friends who... Um, have felt really hopeless and been in bad situations. And we don't really know exactly how to deal with it and how to spot somebody who's suicidal. How do you spot someone if you think that maybe they're considering something, but they haven't gotten to the point of going to the bridge or doing something like that? Right. Well, look at a few things. Look at their behavior, um, talking or writing about suicide or death. Most people will mention it, whether talking about it or writing about it. And the bad part is a lot of us think that they're joking. Um, the desire to be left alone, that's a big one. People want to be left alone. Now, they used to go out quite a bit or they've lost interest or they're saying goodbye. Uh, they decided to start using drugs or using a lot more alcohol. They're starting to do risk-taking behaviors and their mood, their hopelessness. Uh, they're feeling like they're being a burden. So then their environment, their lifestyle, things that have happened in the past, whether they were bullied 
um, the sexual assaults against them. And for, for kids, you know, the bullying is a big one. And the, and the pressure for better grades or higher grades from the parents, that's really big. Do you find that young people tend to be more likely to contemplate suicide or, or, or jumping from the bridge? I mean, I, I know you said that males tended to be, in your experience, more likely to, to look at this as a, a form of escape. But what age group? It's usually it's middle age, actually. Huh. Middle-aged white males is, is the top one that we see out there. But it has been getting, in the recent years, it has been getting um, lesser age. So that, you know, even in their 20s and, and sometimes even teenagers. A lot of people who are at the point of contemplating suicide feel as though their lack of presence in the world will help other people. And if they're gone, it's going to ease people's burdens. But can you talk to us a little bit about the collateral damage that suicide causes? Sure. There's some studies that show that when someone loses their life to suicide, that there's so many family and friends. They say that one person loses their life to suicide, there can be up to 25 people affected who may even contemplate suicide. So there's you know, a lot of things happen when someone loses their life to suicide. We used to say commit suicide, but we're trying to get away from that terminology now. But we can use the bridge, for instance. If someone that I'm speaking to jumps, now I can tell you I'm affected greatly. And now people talk about this ripple effect that happens, and it goes out to the friends and the family. But I want to tell you it's not a ripple effect. I refer to it as a tsunami because it just overflows and it's it's devastating to people and we know for a fact one suicide can lead to others especially when it comes to a parent losing a child when you have had to talk to family members after uh, a loved one has has uh, jumped off the golden gate bridge what is that like i mean what what do you say to them what do they want to know from you you know that is so difficult um, and I, the only way I can get through this really is thinking about, okay, it's not about me. It's about them looking, look at the pain and, and things that's happening with them. Um, most of the time they want to know a, a whole lot. They want to know about everything. So I'll tell them it in pieces and I'll try to give them time and maybe even sometime a few weeks later, you know, discuss it even more with them. And of course they want to see, did they leave a note? What was left behind? Because they want to get their belongings. So we work with them in getting those back. But many times, um, even though there, even if there wasn't a note, you know, there's a lot of questions, and then there's a lot of blame that goes on. When actually, it's it, that person made that decision. You know, it's nobody else's fault. But as a, as a suicide loss survivor, there's always those questions and blame, and you don't understand exactly what happened. So it's you, you know, it's a struggle. It really is. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the most memorable situations you've encountered? Some of the most memorable. Well, uh, an individual that I lost was an African-American man that was standing over the rail. And I was there for, for quite some time with him. And he actually turned around and shook my hand. And typically, as you know, so-called negotiators, you never touch anybody. But I had developed this rapport with him. And he wouldn't tell me his name and he wouldn't tell me what was going on with him to the, the, the driving force, so to speak, of why he's over there. But we talked a lot on a lot of different subjects. 
of what he liked to do. And he was just very determined. And uh, finally, he shook my hand. And this was the third time he shook my hand. And he said, Kevin, thank you very much. But my grandfather's or my grandmother's down there and I have to go. His grandmother had died sometime earlier and he leapt off the bridge. Wow. And it was absolutely horrible. And as an officer, you must try to divorce yourself from what you've seen and steal yourself and, and especially being exposed to the possibility of suicide so many times on the job. But how, how do you cope with it? How do you cope with something like that? You know, it takes a lot of time and it takes a good support group. And what I teach officers and what I try to tell myself time and time again is think of how many people you have helped. And I, I don't like to use the word save. I don't think I've saved anybody. I didn't run into a burning building and pull someone out. But I'd like to think of it more as helping them being there, maybe a conduit on a very dark day for these folks. So that's what I try to look at. I look at all those that we have helped. Because generally, if we can get there while someone is still on that cord, that bar- that rail over the bridge, a pedestrian rail, then we can get them back over. Most of the time we're able to do that. And you can have a really unique connection with these people because you talk about your own struggle with depression. How has that helped you help other people? You know, and I'll, I'll talk about that if they ask me about it. I've had cancer and different things. So, you know, if someone tells me, you don't know what it's like to have depression. Well, you know, unfortunately, I, I do. And, well, I can tell them about that. Um, I won't discuss the, the medications that I'm on, of course, the type, but I will tell them I'm on medication. And, and these are the things that I experienced. These are the, the pitfalls of it, what has happened because I'm taking the medication, but how it has helped me. And, and you know, there's different medications being developed every year, all the time. Maybe you don't need a medication. I always tell folks that. Maybe, you know, you just need some therapy. But let's try some different things. There's a lot of different options out there available to you. Our Nobody Told Me conversation continues as we tell you about Paired, the relationship app for couples. How does it work? Well, you and your partner download the app, Pair Together, and every day Paired gives you questions, quizzes, and games to have fun, stay connected, and deepen your conversations. It's simple and often hilarious and heartwarming. Each day you get a quiz to play or a question to answer, and you can't see your partner's answer until you answer yourself. Whether you're just a few dates in or have been together a long time, it's time to lighten the mood and have fun with your partner by using Paired. My husband and I have been together for decades, and we really enjoy using Paired. Let's face it, you need to work to keep a relationship fresh and growing, and Paired helps a lot with that. We love the questions Paired asks us to answer about each other, like what's something you admire most about your partner and what's one new activity you could try together this month. If you're in the younger age group and have a newer relationship, Paired is a wonderful way to get to know someone better. You might really like the Paired quizzes about managing jealousy, saying sorry, and gender roles at home. Try it out to spark meaningful conversations with your partner every day with fun, research-based conversation starters. Paired has hundreds of questions, quizzes, games, and tips curated by acclaimed relationship therapists and academics. And Paired has a special offer for our Nobody Told Me listeners. 
Head to Paired.com slash nobody to get a seven-day free trial and 25% off if you sign up for a subscription. Just head to P-A-I-R-E-D.com slash nobody to sign up today. Connect with your partner every day using Paired. A happier relationship starts there. Just head to P-A-I-R-E-D.com slash nobody to sign up today. Get a seven-day free trial and 25% off if you sign up for a subscription. You've developed a, a really good relationship with some of the people that you were able to help off of the Golden Gate Bridge. One of them was Kevin Berthia. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Actually, I just spoke with him uh, two days ago. Wow. And and he's a, he's a really neat guy. Um, he was actually over the rail. I received a call of him actually on the sidewalk at the time. And I was on my motorcycle. As I started riding down the sidewalk, I saw him on the sidewalk. He was still talking on his phone as, as was described to me. And when I stopped my motorcycle, I was getting off of the bike and he looked my direction and he just jumped right over the rail. And this was at the North tower. And there's no, um, cord. There's no, like an I-beam there when you go over. At the, at the towers, all there is is a little bitty pipe there. And I yelled something to him. I can't remember what it was, but he landed on this pipe. He was able to hold himself. It was a miracle in itself, I have to tell you. And so I kind of ran up there real quick because I thought he was gone. And I saw him standing there. I just I couldn't believe it that he was still here. So I started getting into my routine, asking his permission. Can I come up and talk with you for a while? But he wouldn't allow me to. He was very, very angry. He was pretty determined. And it took some time before he allowed me to come up and get close to him to where I could try to develop that rapport. Because uh, if you know the bridge at all, you know how loud and windy, you know, you have all the traffic, you have pedestrians around. So we try to stop the pedestrian movements. There's a lot of working elements in that, that are counter active for this, you know, for this type of behavior and what's going on at the scene. Yeah. So he did allow me to come up, and we were there um, over an hour and a half talking. And there was quite a bit of time from when that happened to when you met up with him again. I believe it was eight years. Um, I believe so. Yeah, before we actually um, kind of hooked back up together, and we did this in New York City. I was being uh, given an award by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and the only reason. I contacted him and actually I went through his mother. His mother had written me a very nice thank you letter a couple of weeks after the incident. And I, I would not, I, I told myself, I'm not going to contact anybody because they had asked me, Hey, do you know anybody who you've helped? I said, well, I didn't want to contact anyone because I didn't want to be a trigger. Again, you know, they seem and they, and they could fall back, uh-huh. but I did have this letter from Kevin's mother. So I did contact her. And I said, hey, you know, this is what's going on. I'm looking for someone. And she was really excited to meet me. And he said, oh, he wants to meet you. So that's how we kind of hooked up again. And the first time I saw him was in New York at this event. And it was really, really neat. And since then, we've stayed in contact frequently. And we even get the chance to present together on stage maybe four or five, six times a year. And it's, it's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of fun to tell you. It's, you know, it's a dismal subject, but we have a, a good time. We mesh really well and he's a really neat guy 
Wow, what an amazing journey you two have, have been on in that sense. What what was it that brought him to the bridge that day to contemplate ending his life and, and going over the rail like he did? You know, it goes back to the listening. When he came back over the rail, first I congratulated him because it takes a lot of courage to come back over that rail and face everything that puts you over that rail to begin with. But I asked him, and I asked every single person, you know, what did I do? that helped this situation? And what did I do that was not so good that maybe hurt the situation when you were over that rail? And he told me, all he told me was, you listened. You let me speak and you listened. And that's all that he was looking for. And he had had some some difficulties in his life that had led him to that. Yes, he had quite a, quite a number of things going on. You know, he was adopted. His birth mother wanted nothing to do with him. Um, his adopted parents loved him very much, but they divorced when he was around 13 or so. And he thought he was the cause of it, but he, he wasn't, but that's what he thought. He had a mental illness, which he had taken medication for, but he stopped the medication um, quite some time prior. So, And also, he thought that if he started a family, things would get better for him. And he started a family, but his child was born about two months premature. So when the baby was able to come home from the hospital, so did a a very large bill, well over $200,000. And on top of all this, he had just been uh, laid off from his job. Jumping off of the Golden Gate Bridge has been romanticized in a lot of ways because San Francisco is this beautiful, iconic city. And people think that if the last thing that they see before they die is the beautiful San Francisco skyline, that that would be a good way to go. But the very few people who have survived this jump have said that it's absolutely horrible. And the second that they land, they break all their bones and it's even more painful than it was uh, before. Their their emotional pain now matches physical pain. Sure. Uh, a couple of different things. One is when someone jumps off that bridge, they fall for roughly four or five seconds. They travel up to around the speed of around 75 miles an hour when they hit that water. And you know, most of the time, they'll they die an impact. But also, if they don't, I've seen a number of folks who have came back up to the service, and they haven't died uh, upon impact. And now, because they broke so many bones in their body, they're flailing in the water and they drown. So it's you know it's a terrible way to go. Yeah, terrible way. And if you do survive, um, the the recovery must be just horrible. Yes. Yes. You have that, you know, you have that thought in your mind the whole time, plus all of the things that you would have to go through to get your body back in control. And, and you know, maybe you need plates in different places and, and all the different things, plus all the therapy that you're going to need. And, so, and do these people feel like they regret their decision to jump? Many of them do. They say, you know what? The absolute second that I jumped off, I thought, oh, my God, what did I do? You know, I want to live. That reality sets in really deep and it's too late. And I've asked a number of people not just to have jumped off this bridge, but who have jumped off of overcrossing or, or smaller buildings and have lived. Um, some of them have said that. And I will tell you, though, others have said, no, you know, I wanted to die. I saw gray or I saw black. But all of them have said, I'm glad I'm alive now. Wow. A lot of them also have have had to deal with the stigma, shame, and embarrassment about getting to this point when where they're 
they're on the bridge and they haven't been open with their problems before that because they've, they've, you know, felt this shame or, or embarrassment or guilt. What do you think we need to do to eliminate the stigma that some people still feel about admitting that they have struggled with mental illness or feelings of hopelessness? Now, there's many, many of us. They say one in four people will struggle with a mental illness every year. I mean, that's a lot of people. Yeah. Did you know that since I was a traffic cop, uh, in 2015, we lost over 38,000 people, I believe, to traffic accident fatalities. We lost over 44,000 folks to suicide. So even so, more, yeah. We have a lot of work to yeah. do. Wow. Yeah. yeah, We have yeah. a lot of work to do to destigmatize and to really let them know that you know, what you're feeling is normal. People that go through certain things, um, the folks that are coming back that were in war, you know, the things that they saw or someone who gets in a car crash and loses an arm and then gets depressed, whatever it is, or, or if you were born with this, you know, people that uh, have had things come onto them and it's okay. It's all right. You can live with this. And I, and I tell you, I've had cancer and I'll talk about that openly and I, I always have. Um, and I've had heart issues before. I have three stents in my heart. But when I talk about, you know what, I, I suffer from depression. I didn't want to bring that up because especially for males, um, you know, it's, it's seen as a weakness. So it's difficult to bring up. It is getting better. More and more folks. And I, I speak at a lot of colleges these days. I'm amazed the maturity level of those folks. It's really, really neat. It's getting better. It really is. We have still a lot of work to do, but you know the word's getting out there, and it's okay to talk about how you're feeling and what's going on. You're not alone in this. You, know, you don't have to feel like you're in a corner going through this by yourself. There is help, and there is hope. You also talk in your in your book, Guardian of the Golden Gate, uh, about the release model. That it's a model that you've developed for helping people with who are in distress. Explain to us what release stands for. Yes. Well, I developed this release model to help folks who are suffering, but also to help folks who would want to come up and talk to someone about what's going on with them, what they see as signs. And it's, of course, like what you said, release. It's recognize, engage, listen, empathy, accept, support, and encourage. And I go through each one talking about the signs that you can look for, how to engage someone, the listening skills, use those active listening skills and what they're about, the empathy and accepting that person for who you are, not trying to change them or argue about them and being supportive of them. What can you do? How can we support someone and what you should take with you if you decide to have this conversation with someone? It's, I mean, it's so important. This is a critical conversation to have with folks. Maybe they're not suicidal. Maybe they're just going through a tough time in their life, but let's find out because that regret, you know, I saw these different things happening, but I didn't think they'd kill themselves. Well, boy, here's a tool for you. Let me give it to you. You know, let's, let's help those folks. What misconceptions do you think the general public has about people who take their own lives by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge or who go to the bridge and, and contemplate that? I mean, do you think people think, oh, they're they're just crazy, or what's wrong with that? That, that, and they think, oh, they're weak mm-hmm. or they're selfish, you know, and and that is so wrong. It takes so much courage to come up there and go over that rail. It's scary. I mean, it's scary almost just standing on the sidewalk and looking over with mm-hmm. that rail there. 
Mm-hmm. There was a documentary then, about it that I saw, and it has cameras of people who actually, you know, were were able to step over the rail, and it, it's crazy. I mean, I, I I had no idea how courageous of an act um, that was until I saw that. So I can't imagine what you yes. dealt with. You know, it's a desperate act because these folks are in so much pain, so much emotional pain that they can't see their way out of that. So they just want their pain to end. Is most of the time it's what's going on, and this is how they figure they can get that pain to end. Our, our show is called Nobody Told Me, and we always like to ask our guests, what's your nobody told me lesson? What is it that you have learned in in this work over the years with people in these desperate situations that nobody could have told you about? Now, here's my mantra, and it's been with me for years, and this is what I believe. And it, it's three words, but it's, it develops a lot. So listen to understand. And what I mean by that is listen to find out what's going on, not listen to respond, not making it about yourself, but listen to what really is going on with that person. Listen with your heart. You know, you have, like Kevin Berthea says, you have two ears and one mouth, one heart. Let all of that engulf that individual to find out what is really going on with them. And what are you doing these days as far as suicide prevention efforts are concerned? Well, I am in the middle of a movie contract right now. I just completed three days of filming. I was chosen. I was very humbled and lucky. I was chosen to be on a show featured. It's called The Remarkable Ones. And they picked some people throughout the world, and I was chosen to do that. So we just finished three days of filming on that. And I'm still traveling and speaking. I have my own business um, corporation. Pivotal, pivotal points. points. Correct. And people can find that at pivotal-points.com. Is that, is that the best way to contact you? or? Yes. Yes, absolutely. One final question that I have. What message would you like to pass along to anybody who might be listening and might be suicidal? You know, if I could tell them one thing, hope is tough. I know it is. Um, but there is help out there. There is hope. Don't give up. You are important. You have value. You have worth. You're going to have those bad times. I can tell you I've had them, but it can pass. It will pass. So there are folks out there for you. Keep searching. You can learn to live with this. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Kevin. Kevin Briggs is a longtime California Highway Patrol sergeant. He's the author of a fantastic book called Guardian of the Golden Gate, and he has given a TED Talk um, that's very popular. You can find that online. And over the course of two decades, he talked with more than 200 people who came to the Golden Gate Bridge to end their lives and saved 198 of them. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Kevin. You've been listening to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. Thank you for joining us.